The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. Well, one of the big challenges for Fine Gael coming into the next election is the number of people, number of very senior people who have said that they are declining to stand again. Prime amongst them is Fine Gael MEP for Dublin since July 2019, that being former Thonish, the Francis Fitzgerald. She's with us this morning. Good morning, Francis. Good morning. Why are you not throwing your hat in the ring again? <laughs> It's a kind of complicated answer to that. But I suppose when anybody makes it, you know, a kind of big decision like I've made, it's always a combination of factors. I felt it was the right time for me to say I wouldn't be contesting uh, the European elections again, that I would be supporting whoever uh, follows me. I suppose what I feel is that I've done uh, a solid five years there. I've been able to follow through on a lot of the issues very dear to my heart. I put I've worked very hard. I've enjoyed it. And I just feel now is the time to say I'm not running for Europe again. Is it a concern about not getting elected again? No, it's not, because I think Fine Gael will have a seat in Dublin. Um, it's not a concern about being elected again, but it's it's a, it's a personal decision to say at this point in time, it doesn't feel right for me to contest the European elections again. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, just suddenly lose all my interest in politics or political activity or the sort of advocacy I've always done. I, I certainly intend to, uh, you know, just say this is the this decision for now. I have another six months to go, by the way. So I'll be continuing to, you know, to work on the committees I'm on and uh, pursue the issues, particularly the Directive on Violence Against Women I'm working on. But whatever about remaining involved or engaged in politics, it does mean the end of a period of nigh on, what, 25 years probably at this point? 30 is years, actually, which I can't believe when I look back. What was your original entry into politics? Was it through the Women's Council? Yes, it was effectively. Um, I My eldest son was born in London. I got involved there with just a group of local women who were sort of saying, you know, uh, about supporting women after childbirth, actually, after having your child and just a local community group. And that kind of sparked my interest in the whole area of women having a voice in maternity services. Still a very big issue. Um, I worked as a social worker for 20 years, loved my social work and actually social work and politics, they're very aligned actually because you're working in community, you're seeing social problems emerge. I came back and by chance went to a meeting, a public meeting when I had three very young children at home, um, but I think it was about women's health uh, run by the Women's Political Association. And I actually had never really thought of getting into politics at all. And I didn't for quite some time. And my career has been a bit like that. You know, I often say I didn't wake up at 15 like some of our <laughs> politicians and want to be Taoiseach. And it's always seen as an attack on Leo. But actually, what I mean is that my political career kind of grew over time. And one thing led to another. The day I went into Leinster House, I remember vividly thinking, my God, I can't believe this. And uh, But, you know, the thoughts of ministry or cabinet were not on my mind. And was it, was it a tap on the shoulder from Garrett that got you involved? Was that what it was? Well, I think what it was is that I was doing a lot of media as chair of the Women's Council and I became very well known and... Uh, uh, I was, you know, commenting on lots of the the issues we were working on at the time. Indeed, they're still prevalent. Women in sport, women in agriculture, you name it, social welfare, uh, the law. Then I worked on the commission, a four-year commission on women for the government. And that sort of gave me a sense of what was going on in government in Leinster House. I remember vividly going into Leinster House, looking down and seeing all these men. I think this is extraordinary. And God, it hasn't changed that much. Oh, surely it has changed no. a lot, has it not? Listen, in terms of critical mass, what percentage of women have we in the doll? 
very, very low, 20 plus, 22%. Although if you look at the machinery of government, presumably we have a much greater representation of women at senior civil servant level, at senior public servant level, at NGO level. I mean, that that picture has changed. uh, That picture has changed. That's one of the changes, the presence of greater numbers of women. But if you believe that critical mass, i.e. about, you know, 40 or 50% of women in any decision-making arena is the key thing, we're still way off, which is very surprising. Uh, given and is that a society, fun- is that a function of systemic come. misogyny, or is that because women are unattracted into the roles? I don't think women are. This it's it's complicated. Actually, it's historic. You know, historically, women haven't been in there. Like the church, always harder to break through. Um, it's the political parties uh, aren't always as open as they should be. Especially, you know, the bigger parties have a lot of people already there. It's always difficult. Um, women don't like some of the conflict they see in politics. No doubt about that. Um, not that they're not able for it, but they're not sure that's the style of politics that they like. They might often say NGO work is kind of more satisfying. And I do notice a difference in the European Parliament when you have 39% of women. Different atmosphere, much well, more can I consensus. Ask about that because that's it. And let me tiptoe into this because I don't mean the question to be offensive. But there is, there is regularly you get that thing that says that the culture of politics is, quotes, not amenable to women. And I always wonder, is it a bit like saying that the culture of boxing isn't amenable to women? That's the sport. Is the same true of politics? Is politics of necessity combative, competitive, aggressive, mean, to a certain degree, and certainly when, you know, when I decided to resign there back in, in 17, I certainly went through a period of a couple of months of saying, could I really encourage a young girl, women to go into this, given the experience I had? And then I came around and I thought, no, it's too important to stay out of it. Um, sometimes, and the public usually see through this, it's, it's adversarial in a way it doesn't need to be at times. That kind of false, you know, upping the ante. I, I think the public in general, women and men, see through that. And I, I don't think they've much time for that. And I saw that in the European elections when I went forward after what had happened. But I, I think to a degree you're right. It is a rough sport, getting rougher, getting tougher. Um, and I, I, I think the women, I mean, I met 40 or 50 uh, women who were going in uh, forward for locals. I did some work with them recently. And uh, they're still very keen. So I, I, I think people Talk to me a little know, about that roughness and that toughness yeah. because one of the things that I'm always intrigued by is when you when you interview a politician, regularly they will tweet that the interview has happened and they'll tag you in it, which means you then get all of the replies to that tweet. And what follows is usually, even something innocuous saying I will be talking on X programme, what follows is dozens, if not hundreds, of instances of just vitriol and abuse directed at the person. I always think it must be... No matter how thick your skin is, it has to be challenging that every time you look at social media, you are the subject of a litany of attacks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't usually read the comments anymore because there's lies up there about me all the time and about events in the past. Um, I've had a threat to my children. Uh, you know, they're adults now, but I've had that recently. I had to report it to the guards. So, I mean, that's certainly a side of politics that nobody wants. Uh, and social media, if you ask me about changes over the period I've been in politics, uh, social media, even seven, eight years ago when I was a minister, it's definitely accelerated completely. And we can even see that, you know, in recent times here in Dublin. What did you make, by the way, putting back on the, the Minister for Justice hat that you once wore, what did you make of the events on Thursdays? Is, is it 
Is it evidence of a light touch policing regime? Is it is it the rise of the far right? Is it a combination of both? We definitely need to analyse all that. I mean, it was a very dark day uh, for Dublin. I think Dubliners are disgusted by what they saw in terms of the behaviour. I think we do need to analyse, you know, the policing response, what what worked? Did it work quickly enough? It, I mean, the city did come back under control. And I think what's great to see coming in here this morning, uh, you know, a gorgeous morning in Dublin, two big sporting events last night, uh, controlled back because people were very frightened. I think our immigrants were very frightened. I think ordinary Dubliners were completely shocked by what happened. So I think the far right, the question is who's inciting the hatred? And what can we do about that? There's a number of obviously people behind the writers that see the opportunity and then you have this group who are ready to go out and they have to be dealt with in a very, very tough way. But will they take any excuse that's going? Did it yes. matter? I mean, when you look at people pour, pouring into the electronics department of Arnott's, they're not doing that to make an ideological point. Absolutely not. I mean, the, the the ideology is there and we're seeing it across Europe and you're seeing this move to, you know, authoritarianism. But, I mean, there are a whole group, as we saw a couple of hundred uh, people there who were willing to, in my view, it's any excuse. But you have to say, where's the incitement coming and the stereotyping of the other. John Hume used to talk about this and he'd say, you know, you have to value diversity and if you start demonising the other, and this, of course, is what classically happened, you demonise the other and the rumours that spread after the initial incident. I mean, it's appalling to think that the crime scene, the people were trying to break through a crime scene. So... Yes, demonising. And are you seeing that in, in the European Parliament? Are you seeing, are you feeling that shift to the right? Are you feeling, feeling that hardening of, of European oh, yes. politics? It's very striking. I mean, we saw it in Hungary, we saw it in Poland, where we had LGBTQI free zones. Can you imagine? You know, this area will be LGBTQI plus free. I mean, this is actual, this was law in Poland. Uh, Hungary. Now, interesting, Poland has had a different result in the election. Um, but you're seeing it in many countries. And to what do you attribute it? Is, it? is it the immigration crisis? Is it just the presence of the other? Is it economics? It's a combination. The migration crisis is very big. It has actually been bigger in other countries than it's been in Ireland up to now because we haven't really been frontline compared to Italy or uh, the Greeks. And we were trying to get to a system where every country felt some responsibility towards taking X number of migrants. And when I was Minister for Justice, we were part of that and we still are. But of course, with the increased numbers here, seeing the pressure on the services, which is very real, having to you know generate a, a big response, um, I think it's becoming more of an issue here. And that means we just have to work harder on the integration issues, on the, of course, housing drives it as well, uh, and and the services. So migration, I had I was surprised when I went uh, to Europe in some way to to the Parliament uh, that it it's a very like Germany, Sweden. You're seeing um, you're seeing a crisis around migration, and you're finding it very hard for Europe to respond. And the way we're responding is to say we've got to look after our own borders. Uh, Frontex, the agency that does that, has to be stronger. We have to have more legal routes for people to come in. But Europe hasn't really got it together in terms of managing migration. And of course it's... And is that because the parliament is too large and too cumbersome to ever get cohesion? It's hard to get agreement on it. And also it's it's an enormous issue because it is about the state of the countries that people are coming from. 
And the bottom line is that if you don't encourage economic development in Africa and we don't have a partnership with Africa instead of the old, you know, give them aid, um, it's hard to get agreement. And just recently now, there is a package that's got more or less majority agreement, which is around the elements I've mentioned to you. But you are getting the other being demonised. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned your period as as Minister for Justice. You were uh, Minister for Justice and Thánaiste and then uh, Minister for Enterprise. At the point of which you were Minister for Enterprise, it all kicked off in relation to the Garda uh, whistleblower issues and that precipitated your resignation. At the time at which you were Justice, if I remember rightly, it was a uniquely female setup in the justice system. We had a female chief justice, we had a female commissioner, we had a female minister for justice, we had a female, I think the guard of the policing authority was female. It was the first time in the history of of the state that it was vastly majority uh, female. Did you ever think when you were back in the women's council days that that would be uh, a milieu that you would be part of? Absolutely not. I've always said my career, you know, one door closes, another open. That's been the story of my career. And I'll tell you something that I find interesting about I remember articles being written, five, six women in the top justice positions, right? Which was a fantastic achievement. But then, who were we all replaced with? We were all replaced with men. So the point about women in leadership is that you have to be consistent. You have to make sure there's continuity after you. And I mean... Of course, nothing wrong with the fact that we were replaced by men, but it shows the getting the consistent female leadership is still an now, issue. talk to me. You said that thing of one door closes and another door opens. In that instance, you closed your own door because you decided to resign. It was by your own choice. Subsequently, the Charlton Tribunal looked into all of the issues and I think the direct quote was found that you had acted appropriately at all times. In hindsight, was it a mistake to offer up your own head? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, you get to a point in politics and and in these kind of situations where, you know, the forces, if you like, against you and the mentality, both in media and within the political system, gets to a point where it was really looking like a general election. Leo was Taoiseach for, I think, six or eight months at the time. um, And we had the supply, you know, we had the arrangement with... um, Spying confidence with uh, Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil were also involved in calling, you know, confidence in me. And when you had that combination, and of course Sinn Féin started it, um, at that point, it just got to a point where I felt the best thing, the right thing to do, uh, you know, was that I would uh, offer my resignation. Very, very tough. I had just come back from a trade mission, completely unexpected, I have to say. I wasn't even in the justice portfolio. I was in business. So uh, very incredibly tough like. But then I always think, you know, I did social work for 20 years. I think if you're dealing with a child with an illness or, you know, think of those children the, the other day being attacked. On the scale of things, resigning is very tough. A very difficult situation, but you have to get it in perspective, which I did eventually. It took a while. (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned at the outset that there is a challenge, obviously, for the Fine Gael Party with senior departures or rather senior um, elected representatives deciding that they are not going to stand again. What's your prediction as we look into the next election? Because all of the dogs in the street are barking that we are going to see a Sinn Féin government possibly propped up with Fianna Fáil and your party staring at them across the floor. (laughs) I think it's very febrile at the moment. I think you could not predict the result of the next election. We can see how well Sinn Féin are doing. But, you know, once you get into an election, 
uh, the minds get focused. There can be a different mindset. People have to think very carefully about the choices they make and the consequences for the country. I would say uh, the reputation, the hard-won economic stability. You've got to fight really hard to keep that in today's world. And people will focus on the economy, on jobs, with full employment. Uh, so it's on. But they'll also focus on a housing crisis for which the Fine Gael party is seen as being significantly culpable. Yes, and it's hard for people to, you know, forgive, if you like, the whole housing issue because it's so basic and obviously every resource has been put into it to get on top of it. But given the higher population, there's all sorts of reasons. Um, but that is, that's a difficult, if you like, narrative for the party, undoubtedly. But I think it's, very open, the result of the next election, I would say, because when you get into the election, when you start looking at the records of different parties and what combinations, it's all about the numbers. You very have hard to sell on the doorsteps. I mean, I've said this to some of your party colleagues, very hard to sell to people who are looking at 12,000 people on a homeless list who are looking at a massive lag in terms of the provision of housing and to say, well, we're doing our best and we're chipping away at the numbers. That's a hard sell, isn't but it? But you know, the truth is that huge investment is being put into housing, uh, that the numbers are going up, that we do have a, we've had a crisis point for a number of years where, you know, I don't want to go into the list of reasons why we have that housing crisis. It is hard to keep up with it. And by the way, we're not the only country in Europe. There are housing crises, but that's no excuse. We just get on with it. Francis Fitzgerald, MEP, at least MEP for the next six months, at which point that'll be it for uh, standing in. Will you stand in politics again in anything, do you think? I haven't ruled anything in or anything out. Six months more to do. Francis Fitzgerald, thank you very much. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.